Let's read Genesis 22, verse one. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Why would, I mean, this is crazy. Especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you grew up knowing this story and in children's ministry, they're like, yeah, so this is the story of when the dad almost murders his son because of God's command. And all the kids go, yay, I love that father Abraham had many sons until he almost didn't because he almost murdered him, right? This is, this is kind of strange. But verse three, what happens? Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't delay he didn't procrastinate. He didn't sleep in. He got up early, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, took the fire in his hand and a knife and two of them went together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, You got me. I'm actually going to stab you to death. No, he didn't say that. He said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the land or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Very confusing, very strange story, right? But I think we can relate with it in that sometimes God gives you something only to shortly thereafter take it away. Sometimes you feel like maybe it's a dream job and you're like, this is an answer to prayer. And now I got the job and then you get fired to let go a couple of weeks later or because of, you know, we're in person and now we're not in person and it didn't work out. Or maybe you had a dream and it seemed like God was connecting the dots. You're meeting all these people. They're all saying the same thing and it never actually comes to fruition or it's a relationship that you are so convinced that this is the person that God has for you. But then more and more you start to see the whole thing unravel and it doesn't seem like they're the person that they portray themselves to be in the first place. But it's confusing because you felt like God, in a sense, has been leading you on. So what happens when you feel like God's given you something that you love only to take it away shortly thereafter? And recently, as many of you know, you know, we're looking to plant a church in Brooklyn. And so we're looking for apartments and there's an apartment that seemed perfect, just absolutely perfect. Everything we could ever need, start home Bible studies in a perfect location, a block away from the park. And, you know, it seemed like an answer to prayer, especially because the realtor we happened to have met earlier this May. And so she was able to give us a connection. Just so you know, like the apartments are just crazy expensive. Um, and it's very competitive right now. So it's been hard. We've been turned down like four times already finding an apartment. And so um, 
and looking for these apartments, the big problem is I'm a pastor, so I don't make a ton of money. And so they're looking for 40 times your monthly income in rent. So they're looking for $200,000, $300,000 in household income, which I do not make, by the way. Trust me, I do not make. So I'm applying for these apartments and people are scratching their heads going, well, how do you expect to pay for this apartment? Well, that's one of the reasons why we've been asking for donations and raising money because we literally, it's not like I'm like, oh, we'll just get a job. I will not, I worked at a church for 11 years. I'm not going to find a job that pays me enough with six people in my family to live in Brooklyn right now. So it's just bananas. But anyway, that being said, we're like, but of course God is setting it up so that we're going to have this perfect situation. The realtor knows us because she met us in May, loves my family, remembers us and says, hey, this is what you got to do to get ahead. And she's giving us like insider tips so that our application can be seen only to tell us that someone else was chosen. We weren't chosen. And it was def- deflating, right? We just, we believe like, obviously this is perfect. So that's what God's going to do. He's obviously putting these things together. And then it just seems like disappointment. And then for me, I'm burnt out. I don't want to look at apartments anymore. I know my wife feels the same way. It's like, you don't want to see anything anymore. You're just upset. So sometimes God gives us something, you love it, and it seems like he pulls it away. Well, I think it's good to remind ourselves that sometimes God tests us to see what we really love. Sometimes he takes away the good things because he wants to see, will you love God for God and not for the good things he gives you? Um, so you gotta ask yourself, if you're a Christian, you probably would say that the most important person in your life is God. And then your spouse, then your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your family, etc. But is that really the case? Is God really the most important person in your life? Um, because if God is not the most important thing or person in your life, whatever is the most important thing will become your God. It will demand your time, demand your worship. Whatever is the most important thing, whether it be your job, your money, your abilities, your talent, your relationship, whatever that is, that will become your God and it will ask for your worship. And the problem is those things aren't designed to be gods. They're not very good gods. They can't give you what only God can give you. They can't give you peace that surpasses understanding. They can't give you joy, an abundance of joy that overflows from your heart, spills onto others. It can't give you salvation. It can't be the thing that you put all of your hopes and dreams in because only God is eternal. Everything else fades. Relationships end. People die. Abilities wane. People get old. Jobs, you know, you get fired. All these other things are temporary. They're not designed to be gods. And so God said to Isaiah the prophet in chapter 44, verse 20, the poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? When you worship something, it's very hard for you to challenge it. You'll, you'll know that you're getting close to an idol when you start poking and it, people fire back. So defensive about their child when their, their idol is their children. So defensive about their reputation. So defensive about their relationship. They'll have this protective barrier that you can't touch because they can't bring themselves to ask the question, 
is this thing really capable of sustaining me? Is this thing really worthy of my worship? So when we're Christians, we, we, and we think about salvation, right? I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm saved. We don't often envision being rescued from things that we love. We think about being saved from sin, evil, drugs, drinking, right? Sex or fornication. You think about being saved from specific types of sin, but you don't think about an uh, inordered, unorderly uh, place of your loves. The fact that you've become disordered and you love something that was never meant to absorb all of your loves. So only God is really worthy of your worship. And that's why he has to course correct us sometimes. You know, if you ever think about like love songs, if your friend ever writes a love song, you might be listening to it and your opinion of that song, whether or not it's a good song, it's like, it really depends on who the person is he's writing the song for. If it's a person in an abusive relationship and like, check out this love song I made, you probably go like, ooh, it's like a little cringeworthy, right? But um, here's the thing. The reason why it's cringeworthy is because you know that person's not really worth what you're saying. When you're hearing a love song and someone's just like, Complete, like I would give my life for you. Like I would, you are my world, whatever. As they say those things, there comes a point where it becomes a little too much. Like, I mean, that, that person's like great, but they're not like that amazing, right? And yet when we sing unto God, you can never exaggerate about God. There'll never come a time that you sing a song where people are like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know if God's really that worthy of your worship. I don't know if God is that amazing. Well, he is. And that's why for eternity, we will continue to worship him. And so we got to ask ourselves the question, are we in a place where the most important thing in our life is no longer God and therefore God needs us to go under that period of testing to really reveal what it is that's, that we're worshiping. He did this with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is talking to Jesus and says, I obeyed all the 10 commandments. I did everything that the law requires me. What do I do now? And Jesus goes, great sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he turned away sorrowful for he had many things, right? Now, Jesus did not tell everybody to do that. He didn't go to Peter and, and say like, I need you to sell all that you have. And some people take that out of context and think to be a devoted follower of Jesus, I need to get rid of everything. Well, not exactly, but you do have to dethrone your idol. You have to, Ask yourself, what is the thing that's challenging God for first place in my life? And am I willing to give up that thing? It's easy for me to give up things I don't care about. It's easy for me to throw out t-shirts, clothes, items that I don't really care for. But the things that are important and valuable to me, those are the things that might be challenged. And yet the rich young ruler, he's holding on to his riches. But if you think about it, what good our riches, when the fact of the matter is, it's gonna fade. There's a, a story in the, in the Bible where Jesus talks about how there's a man who spent all of his life amassing wealth for himself. And he sat back and says, this is amazing. I finally got in a place where I am safe and secure in my money. And then God speaks in a vision and goes, you fool, you're going to die tonight. What good is all the stuff that you've accumulated if you can't even use it because you didn't even realize that you're gonna die. And all of us are living on borrowed time. We don't know when the day is that will be our last. 
And so is the way that you're living today worthy of God's call on your life? So maybe tonight what God is doing, like he did with Abraham and Isaac, is giving you an opportunity to be rescued from the idols of your heart. And that's the concept we're really focusing on tonight, which is the concept of surrender. In Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That we give ourselves to the Lord who gave himself for us. It's logical. If he gave himself for us, shouldn't we also give ourselves in return? So as we explore this passage and we talk about the concept of surrender, let's look at verse two. Second half of verse two. So Abraham is told to take his only son, right? And sacrifice it, sacrifice him uh, in the land of Moriah. But it says, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then three days later is when Abraham wakes up early in the morning, looks out and sees the exact mountain where he's supposed to go. So for three days, he didn't know exactly where he was supposed to go. And I think similarly, God doesn't always give us the whole plan all at once. When God calls us to surrender, you have no idea what he's doing and why he's doing it. And that's often why we don't surrender. It's, oh, but, but why do I have to give up that thing? Like, why are you telling me this makes no sense? I mean, we're in love. Why would, why would you tell us to, to break up? That makes absolutely no sense. Sometimes God doesn't give us the whole plan because he wants us to have a relationship with him. It's like if you ever go with me to Hungary, to Budapest, which is one of my favorite cities in all the world. I probably know Budapest better than I do New York City. I could give you a map and say, have fun exploring all the best coffee shops in, in Budapest. Here's a map. Or I can say, let's go on a coffee crawl. And I could show you without a map, just kind of going step-by-step step throughout all the different streets and, and show you some of the best coffee in the world. Um, I think a lot of us want the map, but God wants to give you a tour. God wants to bring you from place to place because that's how you form a relationship with the God that you say that you worship. But that means if you have a tour, if you have a step-by-step -step kind of relationship with the Lord, that means you have to trust him. That's what it means. It means that you're okay not knowing all the answers. Like Abraham was not told why he had to sacrifice Isaac. God, this makes absolutely no sense. You promised me that I would have a son and out of him would be, out of Isaac would be many descendants, even more than could be counted. So this makes no sense. Why would you call me to do that? He didn't do any of that. He just trusted God, he believed, and he walked in obedience. So God wants us to live a surrendered life because he wants us to build that trust with him. Surrender means I'm giving up my plans and my ways of doing things and I'm going to acknowledge God's ways and put my trust in him. So we're gonna talk about tonight the three things that surrender requires. Three things that surrender requires. Number one, surrender requires faith. Surrender requires faith. Look at verse three. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of, of which God had told him. 
The third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. We will, will come back to you. Interesting. So I don't think Abraham was lying or trying to be deceptive. I think he's making a proclamation of faith. As I just referenced, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God takes Abraham outside and says, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was promised something from God and that specific promise dealt with his son, Isaac. So Abraham says, I don't really know how this works out. All I know is God still is gonna use Isaac. If he's still gonna use him, then we will come back to you. Verse eight, second half. He's talking and says, uh, as Isaac is asking him questions, and he says, look, in verse, actually verse seven, look the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So once again, a proclamation of faith. And I love that because as Isaac is looking at the problem and saying, oh, hold on, we don't have everything we need in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Abraham looks at Isaac and says, it's not our problem. This is God's problem. God will solve it. He will provide for himself a sacrifice. And how many of us will be relieved of so many burdens if we recognize the problems that are in front of us are not our problems to solve? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Here's what it says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, as, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he had also received him in a figurative sense. I love this because what Hebrews is saying as a commentary on this passage is that Abraham was so full of faith, he believed two conflicting contradictory things. Number one, God is gonna use Isaac. Number two, God is calling me to kill Isaac. <laughs> this, this doesn't make any sense. But all I know is that God has given me a promise and he's not gonna go back on his word. But for some of us, sometimes your dream has to die in order for it to be resurrected. Sometimes the thing that you value the most that you're like, there's no way. God can't take this thing away from me. But you have to believe that no matter what, that God has the power to do a miracle in your life. And if you are so terrified, there's no way. I can't call this idol into question. I can't bring myself to say, is this thing a lie? Is this really able to satisfy me? Is this really gonna make me happy? You may not be able to answer any of those questions, but God can. And he says, it's time to put it to death. It's time to fully surrender to me. And when you do, it's the safest place to be because it's not your job to figure things out anymore. It's not my job to figure out an apartment. That's God's job. I'm not gonna stress about it anymore, even though I do literally every day. I gotta constantly remind myself, this is not my problem to solve. If I want God to do a miracle, then by nature of what a miracle is, it means I can't solve it. I can't do anything. In fact, me trying to fix it will only meddle with the miracle. If I try to step in and try to fix it, I'm like, oh, okay, I know exactly how this is gonna work. And I start planning and scheming. Then I can never look back and say, 
if God did not step in, I would not be able to be here today. And so it is with us. And so it was with people in the Bible. Daniel, when he was told that he was going to be killed by being thrown into a den of lions, Daniel didn't go, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to protest. I'm going to get everybody to sign a petition. Not saying that's wrong. Not making a political statement here. Don't read between the lines. But Daniel didn't do any of those things. He says, all right, now it's illegal to pray. But I'm sl- I mean, I pray every day, three, three times a day. I'm just going to pray and I'm do exactly what I did. He didn't do anything different. He opens the windows just like he does every day. And everybody predicted, oh yeah, Daniel, he never breaks his routine. So we're going to catch him because he's going to violate the law by worshiping his God. So Daniel was caught. He didn't fight. He didn't do anything. He just gets thrown into the lion's den. And next morning, God had shut the mouths of the lions. Because Daniel recognized it wasn't his problem to solve. He didn't go into, like, he didn't, like his final days, I bet you, he was not studying jujitsu. Like, how am I going to, like, Googling how to kill lions if you have no weapons? He wasn't doing any of those things because it wasn't his problem to fix. Same thing with Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. What was he supposed to do? I'm like, he has this giant fortress in front of him. And God says, I want you to walk around for seven days around the walls. And in seventh day, it's, you know, blow the trumpets and the whole thing comes down. Easy, simple. He didn't plot to take over. He didn't plot to dismantle the walls. He planned to obey and let God take care of the rest. I remember I was on a, a missions trip in 2006. If you've ever been, maybe I've told this story before. If you've ever been on a plane, you know you're not allowed to bring liquids onto a plane. Why? Because in 2006, out of London Heathrow Airport, there was a terrorist plot that was foiled. And so they were going to bring flammable liquid inside of a Coke bottle. And then they had like a camera with its flash and they were going to pour it down the sink and they were going to ignite it using the flash from the camera. So they banned cameras and they banned liquids. And I just so happened to be in Heathrow Airport the very next morning after that terrorist plot was foiled. True story. And so we only learn about that morning as we're at the airport, sitting on the plane for three hours as they come through all of our passports. They didn't cancel the flight, which is even more terrifying. But as we're learning about this terrorist plot, I see that they come through the passports and some guy is taken off our plane in handcuffs. And so literally, now I'm freaking out. Now I'm like, this is it. I'm going to die at the age of 17. My life is flashing before me. But you know the one thing that gave me confidence? So I'm, I'm on a youth mission trip with my youth pastor. The one thing that gave me confidence is I looked at my pastor, Joey Rosick, and I said, well, God is definitely not done with him. So he probably might be done with me, but he's, he's not done with him. He's got other things planned for him. So I had confidence that I'm probably going to be okay because God had a calling on Joey's life. He didn't have a calling on my life, but had it on his life. And so that gave me full assurance that things were going to be okay. I was able to relax. And so sometimes you need to recognize that you won't leave this planet one day sooner than the day that God has planned, right? Psalm chapter 39, verse four, the psalmist says, Lord, make me to know the end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my, my days as handbreadths and my ages as nothing before you. Certainly every man is at his best state is but a, a vapor. So all of us are frail. Like the very fact that you are alive today is only because God is sustaining you. 
That's it. And the day that God chooses for you to go home and be with him, that'll be the day. And not a day sooner, not a day later. And so what does that mean for us? That means that the days that we are so anxious and fearful about what the future holds, we remind ourselves that you are here intentionally by God. And the more that we spend time in anxiety and stress and worry about the future, the less that we have the opportunity to act in faith and redeem the time, looking around, not in our own lives. You know, Paul said to live as Christ, to die is gain. He says, I don't know what's better for me to be with you or, I mean, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Maybe it's better to be with the Lord. But Paul knew whether I'm present here on earth or I'm in God's presence in heaven, I'm gonna worship him and I'm gonna serve him. And that has to be our mentality too as believers, that we are living lives of full surrender, which means that if you're still alive, you have breath in your lungs, God is not done with you yet. He still has a purpose for you today. And so even this morning, I'm stressing out because I'm, I'm driving in Brooklyn. I, I felt like, as I'm meeting a pastor, I don't think I was nervous, but I started having heart palpitations. I do have like a weird heart condition thing, but it was like hurting. And so as I'm walking around, my heart heart rate's like really high and it was like a little painful. And every time I took a deep breath, my heart was skipping. And so I started doing that whole like nervous thing, like getting in my head. But then I had to remind myself, like if I'm here today, right? And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you don't, maybe I'm just weird. But getting into that place where you remind yourself, if I'm here today, I'm still alive. I wanna make sure that every breath that I breathe is used to the glory of God. Not spent in time worrying, anxious, but instead, Psalm 55, verse 22, one of my favorite verses, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So that's acting in faith. That's, I'm not looking at the circumstances. I'm not paying attention to my feelings. I'm paying attention to what God had promised. And therefore, I'm going to act in faith. Now, what, like faith, what do you mean faith? What does that mean to walk in faith? Faith in what? Well, I think the faith is demonstrated in Matthew chapter 13, verse 45. When Jesus said one of the shortest parables, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is faith? Faith is seeing the value of heaven. A lot of times when we're talking about idols, the things that we're really afraid of giving up, and worshiping God, we almost compare them like they're on the same plane. It's like, all right, I guess I'll start reading my Bible more and like love my Bible more than I do a relationship or love my Bible more than I do money or whatever. And you're like forcing yourself like, okay, I know like being in church is really supposed to make me happy. Like worship music should make me happy. I'll start listening to worship music. And if you think about it, like God is the most amazing, beautiful thing in this universe. And so... The problem is not us trying to work up our affections for God. The problem is that we just fail to recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven. Like the merchant who found the pearl of great price, he found a bargain. Like it's like Antiques Roadshow. It's like you found something worth millions and millions of dollars that someone's given away for free. And you can't help but think about how you're gonna go and get it. When you recognize the value of heaven, everything else pales in comparison, what you really have to do is see the lies that your idol is telling you. And so that requires faith. Looking at the kingdom of heaven and seeing its value. 
So number two, what else does surrender require? Surrender requires obedience. Surrender requires obedience. Look at verse nine with me. So what happens? It came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard is and maybe the first existentialist philosopher, but he was a Christian. And uh, he wrote a book that's probably not like the best book for you to read, quite honestly, because he did believe some like really trippy, weird things. But he has a commentary on this book, uh, um, on this story, but his book is called Fear and Trembling. And in it, he talks about how when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what he didn't do is command him to bring him to the mountain or to just tie him up. But Abraham in full obedience took the knife and brought it to Isaac's chest. So what does that mean? Well, if Abraham had told the story to generations later, right? If he says, man, you would never believe God told me to sacrifice my son Isaac. We went to the top of the mountain and I was like, all right, God, is, is that good enough? And God says, yeah, that's fine. That's totally cool. And then I just brought him down from the mountain. On the outside, he would have been a hero, but inwardly he would have been a failure, failure in the sight of God because he didn't obey. He had to go through the act and wait for God actually to stop him. And so for us, in a similar way, sometimes what we do is we give halfway obedience. What we're doing is we're doing the bare minimum. We're not living lives of full surrender. We're living lives of half surrender. Our lives are consisting of having one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. Doing enough so that we can say, yes, I'm still a Christian. I still go to church. I still read the Bible periodically. And so your life on the outside might look like surrender to everybody else, but you're not fooling God. God knows your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so for us, it's really important that we understand that we need to fully surrender to God by obeying everything that he's asking us to do, even when it's difficult. But maybe you're, you're, you're thinking like, but why does God allow us to be tested? Why does God allow us to go through these periods where, you know, Abraham literally brought Isaac to the mountain and holds a dagger in his hand ready to kill him? Why does he allow us to go through all of that? But here's a question I would ask in response. How do you think Isaac would have been treated if Abraham had not been tested? How do you think Abraham would have treated Isaac the rest of his life? Maybe, and it's just speculation, but maybe he would have been ultra protective, right? Every time Isaac has a cold, he's like, okay, like God promised me that you're gonna have many descendants. And so it's like taking extra care of him. Or maybe like Isaac's starting to get to that age. He's like, all right, when are you going to have kids? You know, like God really promised me, like you're going to have a ton of kids. He's like, I'm not even married, you know? Like, what do you think Abraham would have been doing to Isaac all of his life if God didn't call him to give him up? And so 
Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, listen to what God says to the people of Israel. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So in a similar way, the people of Israel, as they're crossing through the wilderness, going to the promised land, God doesn't just give them a ton of food that they just kind of ration. They don't hunt for food. Every single day, he gives them just enough manna, bread from heaven, that's lying on the ground, enough for them to gather. But it's every day is a new day, and every day they have to gather. They couldn't store it up except for the Sabbath day. Otherwise, it would get rotten and, and grow worms. And so the principle here that God is saying in Deuteronomy is that God allowed you to get hungry, allowed you to be tested in the wilderness, that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God allows you to be tested. He's allowing you to go through a trial so that we would be able to have our hands pry off our idols. He's trying to get you to loosen that grip on the idol so that idol loosens its grip on your heart. So sometimes you have to go through those seasons of death. Sometimes you have to go through those seasons where you're letting everything go and you're saying, God, I've been going in this direction and if I give this thing up, I literally have no idea what to do with my life. But that's a perfect place for God to use you because you're fully submitted and fully surrendered to his plan. And that leads us to the last point. Number three, we have everything we need to surrender. So in some, some sense, surrender doesn't really require anything because we have everything we need in order to do that. Verse 13, I'll, I'll illustrate it. So continuing on, verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns, horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the star of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and there they rose and went to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible because there's that one little chunk and maybe I've shared it before, but it's worth saying again because I forgot about until like the other day when I'm encouraging another young guy I'm discipling. And I was just saying, you know what's funny is um, Abraham, after he was almost gonna sacrifice Isaac, they were given a ram that they could actually sacrifice. And from that point forward, they had a saying. They said, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That was like the saying that they had everywhere they go. So it became like an illustration for them to use throughout every area of life. And here's the principle, don't miss this. You gotta focus on this one. That your responsibility is not to look for the provision, it's to look for the mountain. 
Your responsibility, my responsibility is to meet with God and God gives you everything you need when you meet with him. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Which means, here's an easy way to summarize it. You don't need anything to give up everything. You currently right now have everything you need to live a life of full surrender to the Lord. So what's holding you back? It's the lies that we believe that if I just have this much of this thing or if I have this relationship or I, I have that job, then I will be happy and fulfilled and everything else. But you don't need any of that stuff. If you just go on the mount, meet with the Lord, he will give you everything you need. He will be your provider. He'll be your sustainer. And oftentimes the things that we think that we need, we don't actually need and actually get in the way of what God wants to do. So living your life in such a way that you're living by faith and you're you're saying, God, I don't know why you're calling me to put this thing to death, but I'm gonna do it because you've asked me to obey. And as I take that step of faith, I know that whatever I actually do need, you will give me. Because like in Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right, he's the one who leads me. He's the one who guides me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Could it be that, What's really getting in the way for you, for me, what's really getting in the way is not what you think you need. It's the fact that we aren't having a relationship with the Lord. We're not walking closely with our God. And because of that, we're lost. We're confused. We're devastated. We're anxious. But God wants us to enter into that relationship, especially tonight. You know, people are so divisive right now the world that we're living on social media will drive you crazy if you're just reading the headlines all the time. Families are getting divided. What people really need more than anything right now is a close walk with Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody once said, um, the world has yet to see a man who's living in full surrender to the Lord. And he also said, I aim to be that man. But did you know that there already was a man like that? Jesus lived the fully surrendered life. Jesus was the lamb who was slain. He was the substitute. As Isaac is a picture of Jesus, given the only begotten son that was given for the life of the world, Jesus' life actually was taken for you and for me. So that when we place our trust in him, we can have eternal life that starts today and extends through all eternity. So we can't miss that in all this talk about promises, that there is a person behind those promises. We're not just obeying God. We're not just putting things to death so that we're faking God out like I've done in the past. Like, all right, I'm gonna give it up. And you're like keeping the corner of your eye open. You're like, so you're giving it back? Was this all just a test? Sometimes you have to be fully resolved to say, you know what? I'm gonna burn the bridges that I know lead to hell. If this thing is actually gonna bring me down, I don't want anything to do with it. If this thing causes me to walk away from my relationship with the Lord, if this thing draws me away or in any way jeopardizes my relationship with him, I don't want any part of it. And being willing to let that thing go and say, all right, Lord, I fully surrender because I understand that ultimately what you're trying to do is help me to see you in a more clear way, see your love in a more clear way. And I don't want anything that gets in the way of those things. So on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So in conclusion tonight, what is that thing that's, that's in the way? What's that thing that you're really looking for and you're praying for and you're saying, God, please answer 
my prayers. You know, for me, for the longest time, and maybe I've shared that, I, I know I'd repeat myself, but I'm leaving eventually, so. Not yet, but I'm leaving in a couple months, so. Bear with me. So I remember when Jen and I were still, you know, in a relationship in 2013, and she started to walk away from the Lord. She, she got pregnant with who's now Ryder. And uh, I was praying for her every single day for like two years straight, praying that she would come back to the Lord. And she, because of the shame of, you know, being pregnant and not being married and all those different things, you guys know, that she couldn't see God's love for her. And then there's forgiveness and there's acceptance and we're all here to support. And, and so I was praying and praying and praying. And I told her, I told her, I was like, I'm gonna marry you one day. I told her that in 2013. And I was really convinced, like, I'm gonna marry this woman. I was convinced that this is like, they always say like, you know when you know, and like, I knew. But um, so I prayed for every single day for two years straight. And there came a point where I said, you know what? It's not healthy for me to keep doing this because like, I gotta move on. Like she's not coming, well, hopefully she comes back to the church, but my heart had to move on. So I came to a place where I put it to death and it wasn't faking God out. Like really like, I think maybe in the future, it was like me resolving to say, I'm willing to let the past be the past and I wanna move forward in whatever God has. And then two years after that, you know, so a four year gap, we are not in a relationship. When she finally comes back, and she's ready and God's moving in her life in a powerful way. And you know, she's just incredible. And all the amazing things God's done in the past couple of years are just astounding, right? And now it's just like a no brainer how God is using her to impact so many people that I can't reach. When I'm talking to people and they're just like, you have no idea what I've been through. I'm like, okay, maybe I don't, but like Jenna has been through so much and can speak to so many different people. It's amazing to see all those different things. But I remember, and I shared this on the weekend that when I was having coffee with Evan Margareta, and I told him, I was like, I know why God had me not be in that relationship with Jenna, why it had to end. Because if I was still in that relationship, I would never be able to plant a church in Brooklyn. That's what I said. Like, it was just so clear to me. That's exactly why God had me end it. Not to realize that God was gonna do a miracle in bringing her back and then use us together to still plant this church. It's just amazing miracles that you can speak on forever. But here's the key, and here's why I bring that up. This is not a story of, like that whole story is really not, about like, oh, this great pastor guy, because you can, you know, I'm not great. This pastor guy comes in and like, you know, marries this woman or whatever. I had to grow. There are things in my heart that had to die. I had to mature. And I had no clue until I was willing to put it to death. There were so many insecurities, fears, all kinds of anxieties that I was dealing with. A lack of maturity, a lack of boldness. I was, you know, I had all kinds of social anxiety disorders. And when I was 20 years old, I couldn't look at people in the eye. Maybe you didn't know this, but I take classes. I couldn't look at people in the eye. I had so many issues. And God had to completely put those things to death. And he had to take a drastic measure, putting me through a breakup that was like the hardest thing that I had to deal with up until that point in my life. He had to do all those different things precisely so I'd be ready, mature enough to be in the place where I am now I'm not arrived, I'm not perfect, right? But at least I'm ready for whatever is that God has for me next because I wanna live that life of full surrender and I hope you do too. But you'll never know what God has for you until you're willing to let go of that hand and reach out for the Lord. Let's pray.